0: This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I am Ben Korsha.
2: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians.
0: good morning, everybody. How, uh, Daphna, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great. Uh, We are, we're optimizing our sound for our our listeners. So hopefully um, you guys feel like uh, we're seeing some improvements there. So I'm feeling excited.
0: Yeah. um, We're trying to, you know, trying to get 1% better every day. All right, uh, today we have the honor, the privilege uh, to have Dr. Michael Narvey with us. He is a neonatal intensive care physician from uh, Winnipeg, Canada. He has a long list of title. He's the section head of the neonatology department and um, at the University of Manitoba. He is the medical director of the child health transport team. He's an associate professor of pediatrics. He also holds the chair of the Canadian Pediatric Society for the Fetus and Newborn Committee. He is the founder and main contributor of the blog, com, and holds what I would say is one of the most followed and active Twitter accounts in the realm of neonatology, uh, and his uh, Twitter handle is uh, at NICU underscore musings. Uh, Michael, thank you for being with us.
3: It is a real pleasure to uh, be part of this, and thank you for being pioneers and <laughs> putting together a, a podcast like this. It's great.
0: Um, thank you. Well, for, for, the, for the listeners and, and for us as well, who may not know a little bit about yourself, tell us what your background is and, and sort of how did you end up in the field of neonatology?
3: That's a great opening question. Uh, I've told this story many times, but I guess to your listeners, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know this. But So I, I'm Canadian, as, as I think you mentioned. So I grew up in Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba in Canada, which uh, for those of you who don't know, is right in the center of mm-hmm. uh, Canada. In fact, there's a sign just a few miles outside of my home to the east that says Centre of Canada. So we literally are <laughs> in the centre of Canada. Um, but my background is I, I went through uh, med school uh, here in University of Manitoba, then did pediatrics at the University of Manitoba. But the story of how I got to pediatrics and then eventually neonatology is something that I think your listeners might find interesting. Um So my background was that during medical school, from the time I entered medical school right up until my fourth year, all I wanted to do was obstetrics and gynecology. Mm -hmm. And I mean all I wanted to do. Um, All my electives were in that. I did gynecology-oncology. I did high-risk obstetrics in Toronto at Mount Sinai. And it was when I went to Mount Sinai uh, in 1997 um, that I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was as I was... Uh, I remember, I remember very specifically what happened. I was fascinated by the care of the fetus. Um, And, you know, back then, of course, we had to go to the library because we didn't have online uh, resources. So after each day, I would go to the library and I found myself reading more and more about the fetus um, and less and less about the maternal care. And then one day there was a baby and I'll never forget this. There was a baby born to a mom who came uh, in off the street, no prenatal care baby had multiple anomalies mm. and I was able by piecing it all together and going to the library to diagnose the baby with suspected charge association which wow. is what which is what ultimately they had um, and so I had a I had that that moment that some of you some of your listeners may have where suddenly your world is turned upside down and what you thought you wanted to do uh, you're no longer clear about so what happened was I went um, We have a match system here, just like you have in the U.S., and I had already missed the deadline uh, to apply to pediatrics, which presented me with an issue. Uh, And long story short, um, I was able to work out one interview here at the University of Manitoba for pediatrics. And otherwise, I traveled the country for 10 interviews for obstetrics and gynecology. Um, And then... I often joke that I got my last pick, but no, I actually got my first pick. Um, so I was able to uh, to get into pediatrics. And then, you know, right from there, um, I pretty much knew my interest was with obviously tied to obstetrics. And so my second rotation in was neonatology, and I just never looked back.
2: That's awesome. It's a, it's a good reminder for people that it's, right, it's never too late to pursue, you know, what you're really passionate about. Um, it's a, it's a good lesson. It shows that you're, you're brave. Lots of people would have <laughs> just gone through and, you know, done a, done a life of obstetrics.
3: And- yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> We're happy. And you know, what? and,
3: and in fairness, I probably would have been happy. Of course. You know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want any of your listeners to say, oh my God, obstetrics <laughs> is terrible. No. And, no, I think I probably would have been happy there too, but you know what? Um, I I've never looked back. I've, um, my passion is newborn intensive care education. Um, you know, and throwing a little bit of humor in now and then uh, to try, try to lighten the mood. Uh, but but that's those are my interests.
2: Well, it certainly comes through on your your posts and your uh, dedication. Um, that's something that that Ben has spoken to a few times. Uh, you know, we were so excited for you to join us uh, today. That how do you find the time? Given all of your you know clinical duties, administrative yeah. duties to to keep up with this, which I don't think we can call a side project. I mean, you have a really well respected um blog, and um you know, the Twitter handle is reaching a lot of people,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean i want to I want to jump in on what Daphna is just saying because I think it's not i had the, I have the same question, and the reason this question is important for you is because the the content of your tweets mm-hmm. is is dense. You're yeah. not like you're not tweeting. Hey, I just got up this morning. Uh, <laughs> right. You're you're tweeting stuff where you're you're sort of uh, really uh, boiling down like an article, a paper. Um, you're sharing insights, and I think beyond the frequency at which you're posting, it's the the quality of the content that is very impressive and makes us wonder how do you manage to come up at, at such a, at such a click of of, uh, of tweets, uh, considering how busy you are
1: hmm
3: You're asking me to lift the curtain, so to speak, tell you my <laughs> secrets. Um, you know, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, um, I'm not saying this because my wife is likely to listen to this, but um, having a supportive spouse uh, or partner, uh, I think, is very important. And uh, she has always supported and been enthusiastic about it, which which really helps. Uh, she herself is on Twitter, but uh, is an observer only. Um <laughs> But uh, no, so that, that helps. Um, The other thing that, the other thing that really helps, I mean, first of all, you have to go back to where does this come from? Like, you know, I've, I've sort of, I've written about it before, actually, I think I had a a blog post at one point about why am I doing all of this? Um, And what it boils down to is one of my past roles, um, I wasn't always a section head, I wasn't always a director and, and so forth. I used to be a program director. Um my passion was education at one point I was a fellowship program director in Edmonton Alberta for neonatology for 4 years um excuse me and I um you know obviously you don't take that on unless you have a passion for education um now the story of where this all came from I think is uh I love telling in fact I've presented on this at conferences on social media but um the story actually begins With Minecraft and a dog, uh, which is an interesting, interesting part of the story, because um, if you go back to February of 2015, which is really when this all started, I joined Twitter in February 2015. I started the blog then. And so what happened? So it has to do with the child and dog. So my son, uh, my son at the time was really into a a game called Minecraft, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, And then one day he said to me, he was five years old and he said, Dad, I want to write a blog about Minecraft what did I know about blogging nothing (laughs) Um, and so you know what I thought like an educator I thought you know what let's learn it together let's find a platform let's find you know content let's you know explore it so it became like a father-son project now uh, the Minecraft blog you've never heard of because it really didn't go anywhere we uh, but I discovered some important lessons Uh, and the lessons were that um Pl- places like WordPress are interesting, but you need something for distribution of content, and that's where Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. LinkedIn, uh, and other platforms come in. Um, but where the dog comes in is we got a puppy, and this puppy—I don't care what people tell you about training your dog to sleep. This puppy would not sleep, uh, <laughs> and so this puppy every morning was up progressively from four to four thirty in the morning. And so after I would created, learned how to create the blog um, and then started to explore the concept of distribution of content through Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. Um, at that point, um, it was, I'll never forget. It was one morning. Um, and this will tell you a lot about where I find the time, but it was, it was one morning, it was about four or 15 or so. Mm. I sat down on my computer and I thought I can't do it. I can't sit here and, answer emails at 4.15 in part because I thought it's disrespectful to my colleagues like no you know if, if I'm sending you an email at 4.15 in the morning then the subconscious message I may be delivering or you think I'm delivering to you is hey I'm up you should be too right <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought what am I going to do so I read an article and it was from the Canadian Neonatal Network and it was about rates of bronchopulmonary dysplasia in different units across the country and and Although I love the Canadian Neonatal Network, there was something about the article that just didn't sit right with me. And so in that very moment, in an early morning of February, sitting with the dog sitting beside me, (laughs) I wrote my first blog post for um, All Things Neonatal. Um, And it was a critique of that article. And I published it, and it went nowhere. Um, but, but what I learned from that, of course, was using the social media channel. So then I started broadcasting on my own personal account and then I started getting feedback from friends of mine saying, you know, love you, Michael, but like, why are you posting this medical stuff? Like it's, some of it's disturbing, right? You know, to, to a lay person. So then I formed the Facebook page. Now that's the background. So how do I maintain it? Uh, How do I do it? So, um, one thing I'm very grateful for is um, as a fellow, and I would encourage everyone to set this up if you're not, if you have any, I'm assuming you'll have residents and fellows listening to this. Um, You can set up, don't ask me how I set it up years ago, but you can set up through uh, PubMed. Uh, You can set up an automated search. And mine emails me um, basically my keywords of neonatal and ICU and so forth. Every Sunday I get a blast of, uh, across about five or six journals. Uh, I don't search for everything because, of course, you'd wind up with thousands. But, uh, you know, I get I get probably about 50, 60 articles sent to me every Sunday. And, you know, I so on Sunday, I go through the abstracts and I see what ones um, I might think are good enough to really digest in terms of writing a blog post on and which ones are really just short snappers that, you know, just would be of interest to people. And so... I plan out my week at that point um, as to which ones I'm going to post and when. Um, rough idea. I don't write it down or anything, but I have a general idea. Um, and then uh, from there, I am an early riser. You know, I I, t- I typically am up between about uh, five to five fifteen each day, or five thirty on a good day. Um, and I sit down with my cup of coffee, and I now have two dogs. Uh, I sit down with the cup of coffee and the two dogs, and you know see what's out there in the twitter world see what's um, uh, you know see what I, I was planning on posting and uh, and of course you know that's and then you know some things are, are some things take more time than others um, and um, one thing that i do want to point out and I don't, if you've never noticed it all i will point it out to you and and any readers of the blog i often stop short of you know, emphatically recommending something. Um, I usually, my style is to throw out the data, throw out the information, put my own spin on it, and then finish off with is this right for you? Does this make sense? Do we need more research? Because I'm very well aware that, you know, depending on where you are in the country, depending on your healthcare system, depending on the genetic background of the population you serve. Uh, as we know, many, you know, there there are now predispositions to BPD based on your genetic makeup. So, yeah. you know, one strategy may not fit all, right? So mm-hmm. I like to put it out there. If if there's something that I feel is an absolute must, you know, like everyone should be doing, sure, I'll, I'll put my weight behind it. But that's sort of my general philosophy on it. Um, and one question, I'll finish off with this. I mean, I could talk forever about <laughs> About and we could social, we could listen social, just as well social media. But uh, you know one one thing that um, people commonly ask is how long does it take me? You know to do a blog post. Um, it usually takes me about uh, two hours, start mm-hmm. to finish, because. Um, one of the things that I learned a long time ago, and and it's great great advice for any um, up and comers or people who'd like to read evidence based medicine. Um, I am not, by any stretch of imagination, you know, an expert in critical appraisal in terms of uh, heavy statistics. But one of the things that I was taught a long time ago is if you know, because there's so much literature to digest, if you were to read the introduction, the discussion of every single paper. It would take you forever. Mm -hmm. So where I start is I start at the methods. I always start at the methods. Take a look. You know, based on the title, does the methods make sense? If I can see the methods are extremely flawed, I move on.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I think um, Nassim Talib in one of his books talks about the volume of research that's being published on a daily basis and came up with a calculation that said that if we wanted to be able to truly keep up with the evidence, we would have to read about 50 papers a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that would just allow us to keep up. To yeah. keep up with what's coming out. And obviously we're all, we are all starting at a deficit because there's all this literature that came before us, <laughs> but that just gives you the monumental task that it would be that you're describing, obviously. And I've done the same thing as you're saying. I, I usually start off with the last line of the introduction, which is like, what are you trying to prove? And let's get into the methods and see if, if your, if your structure holds yeah yeah I'm disappointed Michael because I always thought that you were sort of like the cardiothoracic team of of Twitter and you were walking with like 12 assistants pointing out <laughs> to you on tablets be like dr. Norby yeah. this is this thing just came out hot off the press <laughs> yeah you know so funny you say that
3: You're, periodically you know. Periodically, I do get solicited. Um, I get emails actually, not not infrequently. Emails from companies mm. who who write to me and they say, "Hey, you know, we're very big fans of your blog, you know, and your your social media content. We'd like to talk to your." you know, team about you know ways in which we can either monetize or we can optimize your site. And I always write back, I say I, I am the team.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> now, and the dogs, now,
3: right? <laughs> yeah, now one thing that you said though that I would like to touch upon because I think that um, it's something that I think is underrecognized, which is I do have a team of people following me around. And it's the team on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the number of people that you know, tag or post, you know, mm. so something comes to my awareness, it's it's incredible. You know, I mean, there are articles from journals, I mean, some of them are obscure, but, you know, <laughs> articles that I never would have found, right. you know, if it wasn't for somebody saying, hey, and I see musings, what do you think of this? You know, um, so I think, um, you know, one one of the things that I think is so wonderful about social media is, you get back a lot, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I mean, you put out a lot, you get back a lot. Yeah.
0: That's something that I wanted to ask you, actually. I'm sorry, Daphne, I'm hugging the interview, <laughs> but that's, I, I have to get some of these things out. The, the, I've, I've written papers before I have gone through the peer review process. And if the peer review process, when you're publishing an article is very in depth, it's, it's few, it's usually one or two reviewers, but it's in depth. When you compare that to the peer review that you're facing on Twitter and social media, where people may not go as much in depth as a reviewer for a peer review journal, Mm. or maybe they would, but the volume of people reviewing it, how do you, what is your, your, what are your feelings when you're comparing peer review on social media compared to a peer review in, in classic sort of publishing outlets? Mm.
1: Well, the first
3: thing I'll say about being out on social media is you need to have some, some thick skin, um, because once you put your thoughts out there, um, you do run the risk that somebody will slam you, you know, for completely missing a point. And that's happened to me um, not that long ago, actually. Um, something I'd wondered about for years, um, which was why does the administration of Tylenol in pregnancy, you know, not close the ductus? Mm-hmm. Like if I remember that tweets. Yeah, if everybody, you know, because our own cardiologists here, when we started to promote the use of Tylenol or paracetamol, acetaminophen, um, when we started to do that, a very respected cardiologist said to me, if it works so well, shouldn't all these ducti be closing? And so, um, you know, I posted. And then very quickly, a colleague of mine in Nova Scotia, Shivik Mitra. I remember um, it. yeah. Yeah, he, he put the reason down. It had to do with the transferability across the placenta. Yeah. And you know, I took it in the best way possible. It would have been very easy for me to go to a place of, oh my God, I'm humiliated. Right? <laughs> How did I not know this? Right? But I took it as, hey, I've just learned something, right? So right. this is a this is a positive thing. Now with respect to the peer review. So that's, first of all, that's one point, is you need to have thick skin. Um, secondly, um, you know, the the peer review is incredible, you know, because like, I'm not going to name names because I'm worried about leaving somebody out. But um, there are people who I think are world-class researchers that I engage with on Twitter. And when they send me a comment or a question about the methodology, again, learning. You know, that it's it's so powerful, but something that people don't realize. And again, you know, I've shared this with audiences who care to hear about this stuff. Um, there is some interesting, interesting research that could be done, Ben, uh, and Daphne for that matter, um, uh, on the amplification of research. Mm-hmm with Twitter as a, as a tool. I actually have data on this. Um, it, I was very, I won't name the paper because the person might be embarrassed, but in the three month period, there was a paper that was released by someone I know. Um, and I will acknowledge it was Canadian because, um, I am being Canadian. I do try to boost a lot of the Canadian yes. field whenever, whenever I see it. Um, but there was a very, I thought it was a very interesting paper. So I decided to write a blog post on it. Um, in one day, that blog post on my site, WordPress tracked fifteen hundred and eighty-seven views of that blog post. That was one day, okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I am bragging, but it's to it's it's to make a point. So in one day, fifteen hundred and eighty-seven views. In a three-month period, the publisher was able to send um, the author who forwarded to me. Over three months, how many times that paper up till that blog post was downloaded? Mm-hmm. Okay, That paper was downloaded 57 times from the publisher's site uh-huh. in a three-month period. It was, it was seen 1,587 times, mm-hmm. the commentary on it on my site. Not surprisingly, that individual, knowing that data... He's he slowed down now, but he used to send me every time he published a paper. He'd send me <laughs> smart man. <laughs> yeah, because th- that's the reality: is social media has a power to amplify, mm-hmm. and so you know, one piece of research that um, again, I'm not a strong researcher, but one thing that I would love to to look at is to take a handful of such papers, mm-hmm. you know, and get the publisher's data, mm-hmm. and then compare it when there's a tweet or a blog post on the day of release, and look at and look because the piece that we're missing now is you know what happens after the blog post you know does that article actually get a bump Mm -hmm. in terms of the downloads yeah um you know i do practice yeah yeah um i do know you know there there isn't like another impact of um i won't name the company here but there was a company in europe um that i i tweeted about a product that they did and of course i should mention at this point i'm not a Paid spokesperson of this company, uh, nor have I received any benefits and so forth. But um, what was interesting was the CEO of the company contacted me via email mm-hmm. the day after I tweeted and said, "Our site just exploded.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you
3: know, we'd like to, you know, do some work with you. Yeah, um, you know, because of your, your your Facebook post or tweet." So, uh, you know, I welcome going back to your original question. I welcome the peer review. Um, I think the more peer review we have, the more that research is being talked about. And the more that research is being talked about, the more people that hear about it. And the better is that research able to potentially change practice for the better. I hope. I think
2: so many (laughs) industries, um, we're already doing that, right? Uh, The focus on social media and medicine is really just, I think, catching up uh, to, to so many other kinds of, of industries. And I, you know, I, I was resistant to get on Twitter, I'll tell you. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but I've learned so much really. I've just been, you know, I think you're every day you're learning, even just by, you know, being on on social media and that I, um, I love the question, Ben, actually about the peer review. Um, I particularly like your um, poll questions um, when you talk about that, you know, you do have a whole uh, team and we can see, you know, what is practice without needing to put out a whole You know, survey, or you know, to and the wait for the data to come out, you get immediate feedback data on um, what are the practices. Um, When did you start doing the the poll questions? Because those, again, I think are are area to open you up to critique.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, the poll questions I started. um, I mean, embarrassingly, I'll say when I discovered there was a polling feature on Twitter. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) but you know, it's it's become it's become a little bit of a joke in my center that people like people know I'm very active on social media. And so they will say, uh, when we have a question that we can't seem to resolve, they'll say, Hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you use your, they call it my celebrity status. Why don't you use your celebrity status and you can figure out an answer. So, you know, looking at the latest poll, you know, I think it's a, it's a wonderful lesson in how Twitter can be very useful. So, um, I'm in the midst of um, revising our hypoglycemia guideline for our center or assisting with revising it. And I wanted to bring it in line with our Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines, of which I wrote as well. So, And I'm chair of the committee, so <laughs> it stands to reason that we should have something similar. But when I was looking at revising our, our guidelines from 2018, which predates the CPS statement, one of the things that I noted was that, of course, in the CPS statement, We have indicated asphyxia is a risk factor for hypoglycemia. So then as I'm looking at it with a critical eye, I say to myself, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where where does that come from? Like, it's on our list. Mm -hmm. It's always been on the list, but why? Mm -hmm. So I did what any good researcher does or any good clinician does. I went to the literature and I came up with Mm bubkas. I couldn't figure out. I I mean, I, I understood physiologically burning through glycogen and the stress. Like I I, I got that. Right. But I thought, how do we define asphyxia? Mm -hmm. Is it based on pH? Is it based on base excess? Is it based on clinical appearance? Is it based on a checklist for HIE? Like what is it based on? So as I'm looking through the literature, I find nothing that is really helpful. Um, Although I keep finding asphyxia listed, but when you look at it, what you discover is it's all in reviews. Mm -hmm. It's all reviews that mention asphyxia. That's what you get a hit hit on on PubMed. So, I thought, you know what, if if people are doing this, let's at least get some sort of consensus. So that's why I posted the poll. Yeah. Right. And and talking about utility of these things, one of um, I'm trying to remember the name uh, Navid uh, might be. Theran, th- Therani, I think. Uh, anyway, I, I apologize if he's listening. I just, re- I remember you and, and, I, I, and we hope I, anyone, he is. <laughs> what's that? And we hope that <laughs> yeah. <he is. laughs> yeah. Anyone, anyone who, who wonders, you can look at the poll from, from yesterday um, on May 20th and you can get the right. answer. But uh, what I was looking at was he sent me a paper he wrote while he was in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a short comment. Um, but in there, I think, was the, was the answer. So, I, you know, I think that that's where, you know, academia, social media come together to give you very fast answers, mm-hmm. you know, very, very fast. When you've got thousands and thousands of people pooling their experience from all over the world, I think it's a wonderful thing.
2: Well, and I can tell yeah. through the dialogue that and sometimes you've posed a question that maybe people have or have not thought about and then they go to searching the literature also so you're right yeah. it's, it's just a way to close the loop faster it's it's amazing
0: let, let me ask you a follow-up regarding the surveys because i've been I've been trying to use the surveys more and more but I find myself a little bit hindered by by what we have called in the u.s HIPAA I'm not sure if it has the same name in Canada right. where where the re- where there's always this, I mean, I could ask theoretical questions, mm-hmm. but there's many times where I would like to show an x-ray. I would like to show, you know, an MRI and ask people, hey, what would you do about this? But I'm worried about PHI and Twitter and all these things. So I just, I just stay away. Have you found um, tricks and, and tools that you can use to um, divulge a bit more clinical data to the to the cohort of Twitter followers to get their input on actual patient cases.
3: So the short answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, the longer answer is I know how I would do it. Um, I think that so we have the same regulations up here. Uh, we call it FIA, uh, the Personal mm-hmm. Health Information Act, which protects all information. Um, We have, um, you know, consent forms in our hospital um, for such, for media, for uh, photos, for videos. And I think it could be easily modifiable. Um, You know, for example, um, uh, I had a personal medical uh, consideration that had to be, be given and they weren't really sure exactly here what the right answer was. And so with my permission, it was shared all over North America to a bunch of consultants. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, that's the way I would do it. Is I th- if you've got a patient and you, they've got a very interesting condition, um, you can ask. Just go and ask the family. you know. And then in the tweet, I would put, with parental permission. Mm-hmm. You know, shared with parental permission. And we might even, you know, because, <laughs> of course, I realize how, that we're you know, desperate for characters. Um, you might actually just create, you know, SWPP, you know, as a hashtag, which would be shared with perma- parental permission, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> and so people would understand that you've been given permission. I think that that's, that, that's a strategy. And and it's interesting you, you raise that because I, I do follow some... Um, Other uh, Facebook um, communities that are neonatal uh, that come out of the Gulf area, Middle East, Um, and what's fascinating to me is it's it's pretty clear that the same regulations don't really apply because there's there's photos of like exposed abdomens and you know surgical (laughs) findings you know and full faces being shown all the time and you know what's what's unfortunate is that. There's always this competition between HIPAA, FIA, and the potential for improving patient care, Mm -hmm. right? So what we're talking about is doing it in the official way. But I look at some of these posts, and I'm not criticizing them. I look at some of these posts, and I think, wow, you know, I've never seen that. Right. I'm so grateful that I've seen that. But at the same
0: time, I think, hmm. I could lose my job if I did that. <laughs> 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 yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is where, uh, yeah, is it is it is it worth it? Uh, before I, I give back the the mic to Daphna, um, the person I was looking up your your Twitter thread, and the person we were referring to was Navid Durani. Uh, ah, yes, that was so close. <laughs> you were very close. And uh, his <laughs> handle is at Riemann underscore Navid. So that's that's it. This way we've done him justice. i appreciate that i appreciate daphna. that daphna you're you're muted i'm not sure so while while daphna gets back on i wanted to ask you something about your um about your sort of the way you operate on twitter i feel like in the recent few months there's mm-hmm. been a switch where you increased significantly the frequency at which you post. And I am not sure if that was a conscious decision and if that was what motivated it. Mm. Um, a very funny
3: uh, question. And I'll tell you the, the history there. Um, yeah, I was on Facebook and Facebook used to have a um, feature that allowed you to cross post to Twitter. Um, At some point, that feature of cross-posting was disabled, Um, but I didn't know that. (laughs) And so um, I typically wasn't very active on Twitter other than just having it automatically post to Twitter when I would post on Facebook. So I discovered at some point last year that suddenly this was not happening, and I had been basically off Twitter for months right and so once i realized that i thought oh i need to engage in twitter so i started posting separately and what, what happened was this this is just the way social media goes some things come in some things go out when I, once i started posting on twitter i thought holy smokes it's gotten really active
1: mm-hmm. right
3: you know and then so that that's one thing that happened the other thing that happened was and i i've done a little bit of reading into this facebook changed It's algorithms in some way. Don't ask me exactly how. But it used to be that when I would post on Facebook, I would get thousands of views of my posts. And with that, the audience was ramping up very, very fast. Right. Suddenly, Facebook in 2020 changed their algorithms. And I think it, I hate to say it, but you probably have noticed there's all these boosting features on Facebook. And I think basically they said instead of it being organic, we're going to put some curtailing on this and make you pay to, to mm-hmm. distribute your content. So um, I started to find Facebook more sluggish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to find Twitter more uh, explosive, Mm -hmm. uh, as far as, uh, activity. So, so that, that was why. And then, um, and I've talked you probably are familiar with the name Sarah Bernstein. So I'll give a a nod to Sarah.
1: Um,
3: Sarah and I, um, met through Twitter and have had some preliminary discussions about, um, about neonatology on Twitter. And pediatrics, even well, pediatrics is a little bit more developed. But um, one of the things that I sort of question, and, and it's a challenge I would put out to um, to your listeners, is if you look at if you look at um, surgical fields, plastic surgery, ENT. If you look at psychiatry, emergency medicine, there are people on Twitter, and even PICU. Okay. Think about the Omni Omni Intensivist with fifty thousand followers, right? Yeah there are people with tens of thousands of followers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sarah, I think has something like 31 or 32,000 now followers. So, although I appreciated your nod about me being one of the most <laughs> biggest feeds, she by far is bigger than my 5,600. Um, but um, the question is, why is that? that that's, mm-hmm. that's something that Sarah and I have been talking about is what is different about neonatology? and, and, I think one of the things you've touched on is one of the reasons why neonatology is as small as it is on Twitter is because, um, take a look at Ben, uh, or Daphne for that matter. I know you're, you're relatively newer. That's why I spoke mm-hmm. to Ben first, but, um, how often are your tweets shared? Like retweeted? Right. Um, you know, not, not a lot, you know, um, it takes a really solid tweet mm-hmm. to, to, to get traction on, on Twitter um, in the neonatal circles. Whereas, I'm sure you've noticed, there are other people, they tweet, as you say, I had eggs for breakfast, and suddenly it's tweeted like, you know, there's 400 likes and there's, you know, 150 retweets for I had eggs for breakfast. Yet you post something <laughs> about a new use for nitric oxide and you know there's thousands and thousands of people out there right mm-hmm, that would mm-hmm. be interested in that and they don't retweet so there's something about the neonatal community and Sarah and I have had preliminary discussions about engaging people and finding can we get boosting like why wouldn't you retweet i mean unless you don't i mean if you don't agree yeah, right, you, hey, you don't agree with the message you're not going to retweet it but for the most part if it's just education why wouldn't you retweet that mm-hmm. right um, and so my my vision you know, for, for our neonatal community. And certainly I'm not, I'm no leader here, but I mean, my vision, if I could be the leader of it would be to say, let's all get behind each other. Let's grow this community. Cause one of the reasons why you found that I've increased my tweeting is because I learned a bit of a secret and the secret I learned was there is a finite audience mm-hmm. for simply posting medical literature. So I was hovering around 2,500, 3,000 people when I upticked, as you say. But if you look at the uptick, I typically post between one to two pieces of medical literature, like an abstract or a blog post a day. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it are little tidbits of information that I think would be useful to practitioners. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's some humor. Right. Right. yeah, and the reason I do it that way is because I've i I've basically doubled in the last year, I think, the number of followers I have, and it's not because of the sensational pieces I'm posting on neck and you know nitric oxide and PDAs. It's because, um, excuse me, of stuff that I'm posting on behavior, mm-hmm. you know, things that we do. Like yesterday's post, for example, it was a late afternoon post, which you know, I thought it was somewhat innocuous, but it was about normalizing respect for not disturbing babies when they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. But, but the additional piece was, because you have to be careful about how that comes across. I don't want to villainize the nurses and saying they're, you know, blocking people, Yeah. but to say, Hey, there's a good reason for it. Mm-hmm. So let's educate the residents and Hey, let's not get upset, you know, over the fact that we can't examine this patient right now, if they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. And you know what the truth is, if the patient's feeding and they're sleeping, they're probably fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're not going to find anything anyway, yeah, right? Yeah, the best case
1: scenario. Um, yeah.
3: So that's just an opinion. And that just took off.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, so, so it's that kind of stuff that you try to, it's a balance of mixing it in.
0: I've always wondered if if so far the neonatology community on Twitter just was too limited to medical providers and that we're not really reaching the nurses, the therapists, the speech occupational physical therapists the parents the former preemies no. i think um it's this expansion that potentially might give momentum to the to the movement i guess of neonatology on twitter
3: yeah no i i think you, i think to a certain degree you're right i mean i know on my own uh feed i have a lot of i mean all of the people you just mentioned are on my feed mm-hmm. um all those groups um because I, I do Every, and this is something people may not know about me. Well, actually, nobody knows anything about me up until now um, on on this great uh, podcast. But, you know, every time e- and, you know, every single time I see that somebody has followed me, I look at them.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: You know, I, I look at their bio and through the beauty of Twitter, you know, I, I've developed a, a very big Spanish following. And. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, uh, Mexico, uh, it's not just Spain, but I mean, uh, Spanish speaking countries, um, Colombia and so forth. And um, every time I get a follower from one of these countries, I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but um, through the magic of uh, translate Mm -hmm. function on Twitter, I read their tweets, you know, I can read their tweets. I can, no, I realize what the translation is does not always make a a ton of sense, (laughs) but I can at least get a glimpse into what it is. So, so when you follow me, I do take an active interest in who you are, where you come from, what your background is. Um, and, uh, yeah. And uh, to me, it's just, it's a real, it's a real thrill. And, And as I say to the people that, you know, um, ask me that question why are you on twitter why are you uh, on facebook it's because of how much i learn Mm -hmm. you know and um i will share with you a a beautiful story um because it's um it's a story i've presented before and i don't think you i don't think you would have read about it before but um, there was a period of time uh, probably around 2018 um, when i'd been at this for about three years and to your point about you know all these other activities I had, <laughs> um, there was and, and I had some things going on personally that you know were were causing um, stress and and I, I one day woke up and I just thought oh God why am I doing this you know I've got enough on my plate <laughs> you know right. you know like this takes so much time you know and what what do I need this for and then that day I got an email uh, from Little Rock Arkansas. And it was a, uh, it was a teacher
1: uh-huh.
3: from a grade seven class. And he wrote me and you um, talk about privacy and restrictions. Uh, he said, um, you know, due to legal issues, my students cannot communicate with you directly, but we're doing a project on careers. And he said, one of my students read your blog. Hmm. It's 13 years old.
1: That's what? Awful.
3: Yeah, exactly. One of my students follows your blog. His brother was born prematurely
1: mm.
3: and wow. he found, he found you and he reads every post and we're doing career day and he wanted to interview you for career day <laughs> Holy <laughs> so, because he wants to become a neonatologist. Wow. And so he sent me, so he said, but the teacher said, would you be open to this? And so I said, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the teacher, the teacher sent me the list of questions. I responded in depth, you know, to all of the questions. And so this 13-year-old child, uh, or adolescent, I should say, young adult, um, will he become a neonatologist? Who knows? Right. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> However, the fact that a child in Little Rock, Arkansas, was touched by something I was doing, that lit a fire in me, mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know, and I never looked back. Because I thought you don't know who is out there.
2: Yeah, that's makes, awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. I uh, I think the way I think that is an important part of um, what makes your platform so special is that you're really you're not just putting stuff out there. You're really engaging uh, with kind of your community. And I mean, I think that story it tells the, the it is a perfect example. Um, I wonder though, uh, I, I think that says a lot about who you are. <laughs> and so, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, how, how that presents itself, you know, in your clinical work and your work with trainees, you know, what would they say about you other than your celebrity status? Yeah. Um,
3: I think they would say that I care,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, I think they would say that, um, you know, that I have an interest in furthering their education. That I listen. Um, you know, I, I I'm not sure exactly how far along you guys are in your in your in your work. I mean, I started in 2004 as a neonatologist. Um, so I will tell you and your listeners over time, uh, life changes. Mm. Uh, your priorities change, and. Well, you might be wondering how does this relate at all to your question? But the reason it relates to your question—the question is—at at some point, I have to admit, as passionate as I was about education, you fatigue,
1: mm.
3: and I, I I became less interested. I would say, without even realizing it, we received some—we received a little bit of negative feedback about our. Uh, education with with our trainees at some point and that hit that hit hard you know and i because i i really was proud of of everything we do and so what actually happened was i had an experience that just it really changed me Um, it was just a few months ago in fact uh, we were using trialing a video laryngoscope Mm. and the uh there was a trainee who had never he was an r1 never intubated anybody Uh, other than, you know, uh, pediatric cases in the OR. He used the video laryngoscope. I stood next to him. I walked him through everything. we talked about the anatomy. We talked about the approach. Everything was um, very intimate, I would say, in that way. He got it. He he got that intubation on his first attempt. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, And he came up to me at the end, and he quietly said, that just made my rotation Mm -hmm. and he he thanked me for standing next to him Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and supporting him. Mm -hmm. And that to me, again, it's these moments, right? That like that ignited me. And I've gone from sometimes thinking, Oh, I've got to do this now. I've got to, to, Oh, I can't wait for the next opportunity, (laughs) you know, to really, uh, see that light go off mm-hmm. in somebody, see that smile, that yeah. satisfaction, of knowing that you in some way contributed to that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I think that that's what they would say.
0: I, I, I like it because I always have questions about trainees and I know Daphna is going to breach the subject at some point, so I can just wait, <laughs> sit tight. <laughs> oh, uh, but I have a question that has been on my mind for a while, which, which is that we see on Twitter, a lot of people showing up med students, mm-hmm. uh, college students, um, I am wondering if you spend any time doing this and if and if you could share with us what your thoughts are on what we should tell future medical professionals about the etiquette and the boundaries that we should set ourselves on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. Because I... I personally feel that I started using the internet very early. My dad was one of the first people in our in our hometown to have like a computer and we had internet early on and initially internet was just a sandbox it was a playground you went you you, you goofed around and and it was just almost like a video game, but mm-hmm. it has really become a professional sphere mm-hmm. and I think people get on it and sometimes you see many many individuals with their full names and titles in their bio engaging on very personal matters. And you wonder, um, is that appropriate? Um, Is that something we should educate people on? And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts.
3: Well, that's something I'm always aware of. Um, Having said that, I've been burned a couple of times. Um, So my advice to people is, um, especially... If you're affiliated with a university, mm-hmm. you know, or if you're affiliated with a bigger organization or an employee, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to watch what you say, because once it's out there, even if you delete that tweet, mm-hmm. somebody could have already screenshotted it, you know, and it's, so once it's out there, it's out there. And, um, you know, you gave the example about asking about clinical care there was, I remember, so one time that I got burned was I wrote a blog post after a very emotional night mm-hmm. uh, with a 23-weeker, and I began the story, um, in, I began the blog post in such a way, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I received a lot of feedback from people who said, yeah, sorry, I knew it was a hard night last night, you know, so they knew the case. Right. Just just based on the timing
1: mm-hmm. of
3: when I released the post, they could figure out which case it was, and then they shared that with friends in another hospital, and and I and I modified it because I realized, ooh, mm-hmm. you know, HIPAA, FIA, you know, they can identify. <clears throat> and the other thing is, um, you know, I had my department head contact me twice and ask me to take something down, you know, which is interesting, right. um. You know, because you talk about free speech and you talk about, you know, uh, our right to say what you know what we wish. But um, I posted something twice and I meant to be, fu- I was trying to be funny. Mm-hmm. But in being funny, I hadn't perceived that if you looked at the joke from a certain angle,
1: mm-hmm.
3: some people could find it offensive.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I never meant it to be that way. And because I, I I am considerate of these things, you know, I was horrified, and I immediately mm-hmm. took it down. So I think when you're going to post, you need to think about the optics. Does this represent who you want to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is that there is that goal, of course. People want to grow their followers, and so the more controversial you are, the more crass you are. Like it's like you probably have noticed on Twitter. Like there are. There are some posts, I mean, forget, you know, I had breakfast. There are some posts where when people are dropping F-bombs and they're swearing, it explodes, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're dramatic, mm-hmm. right? And so you might be tempted to say, oh, maybe if I throw this little F-bomb into this post. <laughs> but then is that how you want to be seen? Mm-hmm. Is that how you want to be reflected? Is it worth it to you to get those extra 50 followers today? Right you know, but have your reputation be, be tarnished. So, so I, I think that that's, that's something I think number one is be very careful about sharing. As you said, I think you said this too, Ben, um, sharing personal experiences from your work, because even if you change one or two details, the last thing you want is somebody texting you and saying, Hey, I know who that is. Right. You know,
0: um, yeah, yeah, I I tend to think my my moral compass has on Twitter so far has been would I walk into the NICU gather everybody and say what I'm about to post, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm I'm thinking to myself would I really feel comfortable bringing all the staff in the NICU and saying hey hear what I have to say, mm-hmm. because if it is uh, political controversial then the, the people in my ICU wouldn't want to hear about it my people on my Twitter followers wouldn't shouldn't have to hear about that either. I want to follow up that uh, question with, during your Twitter career, you initially started off as all things neonatal mm-hmm. and you then disclosed your yeah. full name in your bio. And I thought that was, first of all, let me tell you a story. Uh, I thought that was, that was good because it sort of put a name and a face to, to who was putting out these tweets. But I didn't know who you were until you put out your name out there. And I had this paper that you wrote on necrotizing fasciitis. Yes. I remember. I I had a case in, in, uh, I had a case in fellowship about necrotizing fasciitis and your case report was so good Mm -hmm. because it matched exactly Mm -hmm. what I was facing. And the discussion taught me a lot about it. And then somehow I remembered it, that it was from Canada. And I remember that you were the first author. So when your name came up, I was like, Oh my God, that's the guy. (laughs) That's it. That's the
3: guy. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give credit to somebody for this. Um, so in, so, so, Strategically, I I had it as all things neonatal, and it, the strategy was I thought I mean I have no background in marketing I'm a doctor but <laughs> my my thought was if I'm all things neonatal on Facebook and I'm all things neonatal on on Twitter you know and my website is all things neonatal like it's a brand right
1: mm-hmm. yeah
3: and so I thought it makes sense to all be one and then um, one day. Well, when you noticed that I changed it, one day I got a, a private message from a follower on Twitter and he said, and he said to me, he said, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but he said, people deserve to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And he says, you shouldn't hide behind the brand, all things neonatal, even though you're not, you were not really hiding. No, and, and I wasn't hiding, but, but he, but he said, you know, you, like people would actually want to know, you know, who you are. And so for that reason, right there and then I thought, you know what, he's got a point, you know, cause, cause when you're writing under all things neonatal, you're kind of writing under, it's almost like a ghostwriter, right. you know? And so, yeah, so I, <laughs> yeah, so I put my name out there and I thought, um, you know, if I was writing different content, I mean, if I was writing extremely controversial, right wing or extremely left wing, <laughs> you know, content, I might stay under all things political or or, 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 or right. something. <laughs> but but I thought, you know what? I'm sharing, you know, evidence. I'm sharing knowledge. Uh, so so that's why I switched.
0: Um, I think I think yeah. it makes you even more accountable as well. I think whenever you see your full name when you're about to press send, you're like, is this something that my mother would be proud of me saying?
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was just, just thinking back, you know, to, um, there was one post recently that was a real eye opener for me. And it talks about that, you know, it was what, what you said about if I, if I hit send, would I show the unit this? Mm -hmm. So there was one post I did and I got a lot of flack for this post and I eventually (laughs) took it down. Um, it was a, post in which I talked about the experience of loss Mm -hmm. and contrasting it in the NICU and the PICU. And people used to ask me, why didn't you do PICU? And for me, it came down to one thing. I remember 10-year-old hangings, motor vehicle accidents, families coming into the PICU and just dreaming when we were withdrawing support and you know just the, the the photo albums and the the well when we used to have photo albums but I mean the you know the the pictures and the videos and birthday celebrations all these memories right yeah and in the NICU my the point of the tweet was yes loss is loss but when you lose a baby who you've never had at home who 95 times out of 100, because of excellent antenatal care, you already knew this baby had a very high likelihood of of death. And so you've had an opportunity to prepare in some ways. I personally, it was about my personal experience. I personally found it when I was grappling with how I deal with loss, that it was easier for me in the NICU. But yet somehow Mm -hmm. that message was twisted. To suggest that I believe that the loss that a parent experiences in the NICU is not as difficult by a mile from the loss in a, in in a PICU. Ouch! And the, there were there were dozens upon dozens of a very angry people who were calling for me to take down the post. And what was and so t- you talk about you talk about uh, incentives. So that post. I think by the time I eventually took it down, it had hit something like 20,000 impressions. Like it, had, which, like it, it blew up, right? right? But ultimately, I thought, you know what? Going back to your question, I thought, if I leave this up here, mm-hmm. and I know that there are that many people out there who are, are experiencing probably pain mm-hmm. from thinking that I am minimizing the lo- their loss, like, who am I doing that for?
1: Right. right.
3: You know, I'm not doing it for them. You know, I'm doing it for my own, you know, self-interest. So I took it down.
2: <laughs> I'm glad that um, you sh- you have shared some of these kind of difficult post and um, situations. And I think it helps us, you know, uh, moderate <laughs> what, what, what we're doing, but I was hopeful that maybe you'd share your, your favorite tweet, your favorite post, or the one that got the most buzz uh, to give the,
3: the other side of the coin. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, oh, what was, oh, actually, this is another one of these things that is uh, informative, I'll say. <laughs> there was a post, so I was, I can't remember where I, I was either on LinkedIn or I was on just scrolling through one afternoon. And I came across a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of um, three women feeding their babies. Mm-hmm. One was fed by breast. One was fed by bottle and one was fed through a gastroostomy tube. Mm-hmm. It was a photograph. The, um, the, uh, artist's name was actually in small letters, but was the signature was on the bottom and I posted it to, um, Twitter. It got picked up by, Oh, and it said something like fed is best or something, something like that. Um, I just thought it was a beautiful picture. So I posted it and uh, Jen Gunter um, picked it up and she retweeted it. And I think I I stopped counting, but it was like 200,000 impressions or something like that. Like it was liked like 1500 times. It was retweeted like 400
2: at this point.
3: Yeah, it it went viral. But at the same time, the trolls came out. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was like, I thought it was a beautiful picture. I was very happy to have posted it. But I learned a good lesson, and that's another of these lessons I teach, is because I didn't specifically name the artist who had done this, the trolls came out, you know, saying that I was a horrible human being, I was stealing property, and, mm. and blah, 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 blah. Long story short, I then put a, in the replies, I actually looked up who the artist was, I, you know, and, and tagged him, he was on Twitter. And then he offered to sell prints to everybody if they want copies, and I thought it was fine, um, yeah. you know. But um, but that is a good lesson: is that um, if you are going to use content, um, if you're going to use content that's not yours, um, there there there, you know, there there's free content that you can get. There's content that people would want to charge you for. Um, so be careful of what you post out there. But that that to me that was my biggest hit as far as a, <laughs> as a post went. Um, and I still, I still love the message. I, I think that, um, uh, it was a beautiful picture.
2: Yeah. And it, it keeps posting it over and over again. Yeah. Um, I wonder what you think is kind of the future for social media, the future for, uh, kind of the interface between, um, technology and education.
3: Um. I think that I mean I think we're we're already somewhat there, um, as you can tell. I've got I tell stories and I've got lots of stories. But I was, um, you know, 2015, 16, when I started this. I was stopped in the hallway by a senior member of my department, who said to me the following: "said I I need to talk to you. I'm very concerned." I said, "What are you What are you concerned about?" Said, "You have become." A public embarrassment to our department. And I said, I said, pardon? <laughs> and they said, they said, you are the section head or what you would call a division head. Mm-hmm. They said, you are, you are the section head of neonatology. And how can you be out there on Twitter and Facebook? It's an embarrassment. And you need to consider stopping this because it is not becoming of a academic mm-hmm. position." Wow. Um, so that, you know, that was an interesting experience. It was a person I respect, continue to respect. And I, and I understood where that person was coming from. Um, but I did some research and I actually have a, a, I'm not trying to advertise to give the presentation, but I have a presentation where I basically make a case based on that comment as to why academics Mm -hmm. belongs on twitter Mm -hmm. why social media is the future Mm -hmm. you know and that the academic clinician who is not on social media is actually missing out you know in if your goal so this is the future if your goal is that i mean why do you do research Mm -hmm. let's start there you do research because you have an inquisitive mind You want to solve a problem and you want others to know about it.
2: Disseminate info.
3: Disseminate the information. There is no question. And the the journals get this. Mm -hmm. All the journals now have social media departments and they're all posting articles that come out that are of interest, right? So if you're not on social media as an academic clinician, you're missing a big piece of the dissemination piece. And so what I see... Is that there in the future? There's going to be a blurring of the lines. Mm-hmm. I think that um, you know I, I won't name the journal, but a very prestigious journal, and I'm I'm not making this up. It was this morning. Mm-hmm. I wake up and in my inbox, a pr- very prestigious journal in in pediatrics sends sends me a note and says, uh, "Dear Dr. Narvi, um, we have s- per- we have taken the liberty of setting you up an account." To be a reviewer please click on this link Mm -hmm. you know and we would love to be able to send you papers right Mm -hmm. now why is that happening Mm -hmm. well it's not happening because i have you know a huge you know research portfolio it's happening because my name's out there Mm -hmm. right right so to that end um, that's where i think we're headed i think that the big names in academia And you can see that already. Again, I I don't want to name names for fear of leaving somebody out. But there are big, big names in academia that are on Twitter. And I think that they get it. Mm -hmm. Where I'd really like to see us go, and I hope that somebody listening, you know, does this, is I want to see our neonatal community get boosted. And I mentioned it before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no reason when I see plastic surgeons that have 100,000 people following You know, when I see ENT docs with 50,000, intensivists with 50,000, why shouldn't we be at Mm 50,000, you know? Now, you can say if you make your interest too focused, that's one reason you're not going to be there. But don't forget, these same people are also posting about medical information, yet there's a greater uptake. So I think... That's that's where I'd like to see. I'd like to see there to be great discussions. I think there can there's already journal clubs that are on social media where we digest the information. But I think also the future is imagine sharing that information in it's sort of like with a quality lens to say, mm-hmm. like wouldn't it be great, Daphne, if if you or, or Ben took a paper, that created a policy change, mm-hmm. and then you were able to present some quality work on Twitter, and say, "Here is a here is a <clears throat> here is a graph, a timeline graph, a run chart, showing what our incidence of nosocomial sepsis is in our unit since we implemented this one change, which was sparked by this paper, mm-hmm. right? And you saw it went down. Well, wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. You know, for people." You know, I think that that's that's sort of the direction that I think we should get to.
0: I think there's I think you're absolutely right. I have personally, I think um, I was recently watching a documentary about Napster, the downloading platform where you could and and it showed how it disrupted the the music industry where we used to go to the record store and buy CDs and then got home Mm -hmm. and then Napster sort of changed the mentality as how people consume that product, which was music, and now everybody uses streaming and downloads, and we tower records is out of business. Yeah. And I think I think something similar will happen to to the journals. And I think it's up to them. That's what the documentary was sort of hinting at was that it's up to the established industry to adapt and foresee the change. I think when you look at publications, it's a mode of disseminating evidence that is archaic, which is you finish a study and then Three months later, it goes on paper into a journal that will go to subscribers and as people realizing that you could build an audience on Twitter and you could have better reach. And we're not making any profit of these uh, publications, aside maybe from a little bit of the prestige, but I'm wondering if the prestige of the publications is not going to be replaced by the prestige of the clicks, the likes, the retweets, and the followers. And, And if you're a journal, I think that should be extremely concerning because... Why shouldn't I put my PDF on Twitter and let everybody read it for free, get feedback, and then build myself some stature through followers and through social media rather than through just the number of publications I've had? I think, I think that's something that people will have to look at very carefully. I think you're right. <laughs> um Daphne, do you have any more questions I mean I'm, we're coming close to yeah, no, to I, our I have hour a lot more we could keep go- we could keep going so, right. so so I much thinking,
2: yeah. uh, maybe we'll continue some of our discussion on Twitter um uh-huh. and I I'll leave you with one other question um I want to know when you started wearing the kangaroo suit on kangaroo oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: that started I think I think it was four years ago I think it was 2017. I love it they you were looking for someone who was willing to put one on <laughs> i said why not
0: and 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 your your uh, your chair didn't say that it was unbecoming <laughs> of a section <laughs>
3: no <laughs> no although i will tell you there's a few senior nurses that see me coming with this and just shake their head and say oh my god <laughs> but,
2: but just like your social media presence i think that people know that it works so
3: it does it does and you know what um I can say this without, I was just thinking, can I say this with Fia, but I can. Um, Probably the most special moment that I've had with the kangaroo suit was uh, just this past week Mm. because I went around uh, the unit several times. And as I went around the unit, I came up to one room and I think I posted this on Twitter. Actually, I came up to one room and the bedside nurse stopped me before i went in because i was going around to talk about kangaroo care with all the families um so i don't just walk around a kangaroo care <laughs> i i promote kangaroo care do, do you hop from from bed? To- <laughs> first year i did first year oh i hopped God. <laughs> and then afterwards people told me it looked ridiculous so I stopped. but um no so i went up to this one room and the, and the bedside nurse came out of the room and said you know what dr Narvi, i think you might just want to move past you know like, she's this family's having a really hard day. And I looked at her and I said, You know, maybe I should go in. Because mm-hmm. I knew I looked ridiculous. So I thought, maybe, maybe, maybe I should go in. I went in and a mother's tears turned to laughter. Mm-hmm. She was crying. And then she looked up, she saw me and she just went, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> she started laughing. And I didn't spend a long time in there, but I. I just said, hi, it's kangaroo care week. Wanted to make sure you're aware of it. And she thanked me for coming. I finished my circuit and then I went on a second circuit about an hour later. When I went an hour later, her mother was in and they, she'd obviously been telling her about the kangaroo Mm -hmm. and they found me in the hallway and they asked if they could take my picture (laughs) with with them. And mom was smiling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, I'd wear that kangaroo care suit every day. (laughs) You know, if I could get that kind of turnaround in emotion, uh, I just do rounds in it every day, but no, I mean that, you know, I I think sometimes if you're willing to look ridiculous, you know, if we can bring a little bit of laughter to the NICU, it's a beautiful thing.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank
0: you. I almost want to end on that. It's so good.
2: Nothing left to say.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much. This was this was so much fun. Um, and yeah. uh, we should definitely do that again in the future. Uh, for the people listening, you are um, on Twitter, obviously, at NICU underscore musings. And you have the allthingsneonatal.com blog. Um, thank you so much. And uh, it was a pleasure. Daphna, thank you again.
3: Likewise. Thank always. you
0: both. Thank you both. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, NICUPodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast personally i am on twitter at dr nicu spelled d r n i c u and daphna is at dr daphna md thanks again for listening and see you next time this podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice if you have any medical concerns please see your primary care practitioner thank you